All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is May 30th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be a presentation by the LGBT Plus Commission of the Party of Communist USA on the LGBT Plus struggle. I just want to say that I know that this subject that we're going to be talking about tonight is going to be one that we're not all going to agree on and that people have strong feelings about. I just want to assure all of our comrades that everyone will have a chance to be heard tonight. Everyone will have a chance to express their opinion, and nobody will be shut down for anything they say, unless it's outright bigotry or being argumentative. And that's just the regular standard procedure for the school. I want the school to be a place where everyone feels safe and respected, and everyone feels like they can ask whatever questions they have and make whatever comments they have without being silenced. And with that, let's have a good class tonight and Thursday, like we always do. So as I said, tonight's class is going to be on the LGBT plus struggle. And what we're going to be learning today is we're going to be learning about the history of LGBT plus people throughout the eras of human development, the history of the LGBT plus in the Holocaust, and communists in the LGBT plus struggle, the problems of pinkwashing and rainbow capitalism today, and the LGBT plus struggle today and the PCUSA's position on it. So this is going to be a pretty broad-based class covering a lot of things, and it's going to be nuanced as well. It's, it's not just going to be one full-on position over another. There's going to be a lot of different, like I said, nuance for this class. The LGBT plus community is the group of people in society that are not cisgender, which means identifying as the gender they were assigned by the state at birth and or heterosexual, which is attracted to the opposite binary gender. The acronym stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and the plus represents genders and sexual orientations not mentioned. Uh, now, it's important to understand there are a variety of other acronyms that are newer or older than this. Sometimes it gets called alphabet soup because it tends to be that people throw on a lot of other letters onto it. But the PCUSA and PSMLS just use LGBT+, um, which we feel is inclusive enough and is the most common acronym. And on the side is the original rainbow pride flag, progress one that is utilized, uh, and a couple of the other flags over on the side. So I just wanted to include this slide so that we knew what we were talking about and we knew what the acronym meant going into the class. The history of the LGBT plus community, I felt like we should understand how this community existed in different forms uh, throughout the different eras and modes of production. So that's what we're going to do to begin this class. So to start off, uh, we need to understand the pre-capitalist LGBT plus presence. In all eras of human development, there have been people whose gender and or sexual orientation was different from what is thought to be the dominant cisgender and heterosexual norms enforced by most ruling classes. The repression of behavior or expression that didn't align with those norms was more or less pronounced at different times throughout this history, uh, meaning there were times when there were uh, more LGBT plus repression, there were times when there was less LGBT plus repression, and that goes for all eras. It's even true in our era. There are times when there's more or less repression, but it's important to understand that prior to the 20th century, it was rare for people to actually call themselves uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, etc. LGBT plus basically combines all of these identities and activities into one 
group. And in this section, that represents the people that did not align with the aforementioned norms. So when I mention LGBT plus people in a past tense manner, just understand that I'm referencing the people that weren't cisgender, weren't heterosexual, that did things and activities that didn't align uh, with what the ruling classes enforced. And on the side, you can see examples of different LGBT plus people and activities throughout times of history. So first to talk about primitive communal, Frederick Engels believed that primitive communal societies were matriarchal. However, this assumption by 19th century philosophers has largely been proven false, but women were freer before slavery and feudalism. The procreative purpose for sexual intercourse was not understood in this time. Sexual relationships were for the most part non-monogamous and only moved in from the whole tribe to two people in the later stages of this society. For this reason, in addition to much more evidence today than the 19th century, we can see the plentiful existence of LGBT plus relations in this era, including examples of different expressions of gender. Examples can be found in the indigenous tribes of the Americas, Africa, Oceania, and the Pacific Islands, including of sodomy, people with penises wearing women's clothes, and people expressing two or more genders, etc. And on the side, we can see an example of uh, what is probably a lesbian relationship uh, from indigenous Americans, indigenous uh, American, uh, which would now be referred to as two-spirit, but was referred to as, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Burr Dash or something like that at the time. Uh, now for Mediterranean slavery uh, and LGBT plus, uh, now slavery was something that mainly happened in that area. There was feudalism in other parts of the world, but I wanted to include this. Uh, the transition to slavery in the Mediterranean accompanied by a change to more patriarchal societies and the creation of private property for the ruling classes meant the rights of women were demolished and now served the men in the household. With slavery, sexual freedom and expression were heavily restricted as the propertied class, the slave-owning class of men, recognized homosexuality to interfere with passing on wealth through their bloodline. This being said, homosexuality and possible early examples of transgender people existed and were well-documented, in ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, as well as the first laws against cross-dressing, sodomy, etc. And on the side, we can see art from this time that depicts the patriarchy, these women serving this man who's the ruler. And over here, here's an example of somebody from this time, Sapphos, which was an ancient Greek poet who wrote very uh, lesbian-esque poems about different love between women at that time. And on the bottom left is a Roman coin uh, with homosexual love on it, just going to show examples in that time frame once again. As we move to feudalism, uh, we see the rise of Christianity, and it resulted in the Roman Empire banning homosexuality shortly before the fall of Rome. After the fall, homosexuals were blamed and hunted, tortured, and killed for it. And one of the things that's in the Bible as well that uh, was used as a thing to spread fear of homosexuality was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So and we've got a picture over there just to show that. As feudalism replaced slavery and serfdom replaced the class of slaves, and the great international uh, center of feudalism was the Roman Catholic Church, as Engels said. Based on interpretations of the Bible that asserted homosexuality a deadly sin, 
homosexuality and what was called then transvestism were met with brutal murder throughout the feudal period. Joan of Arc was charged with transvestism before being executed. And even in this period, which lasted over a millennium from the fall of Rome to the uh, start of mercantilism and capitalism, examples of LGBT plus people existed, both in feudal Europe and elsewhere in all classes. Now, the nobility were safe when they did it. The serfs were not. Um, and on the side, uh, there's a picture of the burning of sodomites at the time. Uh, there's gay lovers and medieval art and Joan of Arc, uh, who was wearing the sort of male military garb uh, at the time. Then we go to capitalism and the LGBT plus community. When kingdoms fell and republics emerged and lord and serf were replaced by bourgeois and proletariat, the expression was less based on religion and more on the nuclear family, as Engels talks about. Under capitalism, the LGBT plus community has been seen as dangerous to the interests of the bourgeoisie because the possibility of homosexual relationships or the newer gender reassignment surgery of the 20th century meant workers might not reproduce more workers, which is what the nuclear family is designed to do. Much of the same anti-sodomy, anti-cross-dressing laws stayed in effect in many places until fairly recently. LGBT plus people were documented throughout capitalist history as well, especially in the last two centuries, as cameras, microphones, and more were invented. And again, uh, this is in all classes, and you can see examples uh, all over the side. One of the examples I like to bring up is somebody who kind of uh, we can think of as like a, a, a primitive form of, of non-binary. It's the universal friend. They were in North America at the time of uh, the revolution. And they were just a friend to people. That's that's basically how they identified at the time. And we need to touch on fascism and the LGBT plus genocide by Nazi Germany. When fascism came about in the 1920s as a result of imperialism and World War One, the fascists rallied around scapegoats. This is a big part of fascism, by the way, which the bourgeois had already pushed to divide the workers, which is the purpose of scapegoating and to distract from the root cause of their problems. One of the major scapegoats was the LGBT plus community in Germany, which they claimed were degenerates. Magnus Hirschfeld was a German physician and sexologist who studied homosexuality intensely and started the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, the first LGBT plus rights organization in history, and founded the Institute for Sexology, one of the first institutes conducting gender studies and studies into sexuality. And during the Nazi rise to power, the Institute for Sexology was destroyed and much of the research was burned by the Nazis themselves. Magnus Hirschfeld was beaten and exiled to France where he died in 1935. Germany had instituted a ban on same-sex relations in 1871, known as Paragraph 175, and the Nazis acted on it during the Holocaust, and about 15,000 German LGBT plus people were sent to concentration camps, branded with pink triangles for recognition, and thousands perished at the hands of the fascists. And over at the side, uh, there's a picture of the Institute of Sexology, a picture of Magnus Hirschfeld, a picture of the Nazi burning of books from the Institute, um, which is a very famous picture and the homosexuals in the concentration camps with the pink triangle colorized 
uh, to show that symbolism. And uh, just before we move on, the pink triangle is a symbol that is still used by the LGBT plus community today, usually inverted uh, to represent what we went through during that period. And before we go to our first round of questions and comments, I just wanted to watch a quick video about the Nazi persecution of gay men, lesbians, and trans people. All right, and with that, we'll start our first round of questions and comments. Thank you. I just wanted to mention, I don't know why, I'm going to go back to even biblical times, because especially in America, a lot of these people claim to love the Bible. There's a story in Samuel about David loving the son of Samuel, and I just wanted to put a few quotes from it. It says, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then at the bottom here, just quickly, it says, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from the bedside of the stone heap where he was hiding, bowed to Jonathan in thanks. Then, quote, they kissed each other and wept with each other. David wept the more. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. He got up and left. Jonathan then went into the city. So I just want to point out for any of those Bible loving, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, the Bible's not inherently all anti-homosexual. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to say, you know, before we go forward into this class, um, I don't want anybody to, you know, invalidate Christians or what they believe or to go against uh, the Bible. But one of the things that I think we need to realize when we talk about that is that the Bible has a lot of translations. It's a very old text. There are a lot of other religious texts out there, and the translations during different periods of times serve different ruling classes, for one. But the other thing is that the level of consciousness is something that we as Marxists need to understand. And the understanding of the struggle of the LGBT plus people throughout history is not something that's always been so pronounced. It's not something that was always such a forefront struggle. And so, you know, to a certain extent throughout history, 
there have been forces, whether religious or otherwise, that saw it as a problem because it wasn't something that was so pronounced and because they were devoted to their religion. And, and to some extent, we can't blame them for that. So I just wanted to say that. Uh, Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to point out a couple of things in history. The Night of the Long Knives in Germany, where Hitler got rid of the brown shirt movement, which was a competitor to the black shirt movement, the Gestapo. And he used the excuse that some of these people were gay. And he went into their brothel, their area, uh, during the night, and he killed them. These were his allies, by the way. And I think it was obvious why things changed. It's not superficial the way we think it is. 1918, what is the national anthem of the Soviet Union? The new Soviet Union, which existed in 1922. It was the international. What happened in 33, 34, that period? They got rid of the international, and they did it because... They knew what was going on in Germany, the Soviet leadership. They had to use uh, patriotism to solidify a strong movement against the invading Germans that they knew was coming. Because Mein Kampf, that book, said it, that they were going to invade the Soviet Union. So what did they do? The leadership changed the song to a more patriotic song. The international was more of an international song. And they changed their views on homosexuality. If you remember, they now had to form alliances with the church in the Soviet Union to get their support for a patriotic front. So they changed their views, which was different in 1917 and 1918. Two they were the first country to decriminalize that kind of thing. And they went back on that. Also, they needed more people. Remember that for the oncoming war. So they had to push that. And the third thing I wanted to mention is Cuba has taken the leading role today, actually for the past 25 years, in fighting for the rights of um, homosexuals and people of that persuasion. So I wanted to mention that in East Germany, German Democratic Republic had very free atmosphere for the gay and lesbian community. So therefore, they were definitely opposite of what Hitler did in his Germany. So I want to mention that these countries have different reasons to change their policies. A lot of it had to do with international politics. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And just briefly, before we go forward, I want to say that in the 20th century, and even today in the 21st, a lot of countries, most countries around the world, still have problems and had problems when it came to the LGBT plus problem. Um, or the LGBT plus issue. Um, so we can't use it against any of these so socialist states when in a lot of these Western countries, they had the same issue. And it's also just a matter of picking the right battles at the right times. So there's a lot of nuance to this. I'm thinking within the last 100 years when I ask this, or maybe 200 if anyone has an answer, um, was it historically more explicitly stated why gay people were being singled out, gay and trans people. Uh, like you said, it's because they uh, mess up the nuclear family and inheritance for like rich people. And now I feel like there's an atmosphere, there's certain people who are against LGBT people, and it's usually religious, and it's usually not very explicitly stated why 
they're against it, at least as far as I understand their view. Yeah. So my response would be some of it was religious. And there's obviously when you follow a religion, you follow it strongly and nobody can blame you for that. Um, but I think that and another thing is the nuclear family, too, and that's why it's related to class. But I think another thing is the bourgeois makes these scapegoats and divides the working class so that we're not stronger against them. And the scapegoats and the chauvinism goes into that. And we'll see later in this presentation, it comes from both parties um, and it comes from both directions. But, you know, when it comes to the homophobia and transphobia that's manifested in the last century or two, it's been to divide the working class. So I just wanted to respond with that. I remember like uh, we had uh, like a class on this last year. What date was that? So I can look at my notes I put down. The last class? Uh, like uh, I think we had one about uh, on this issue before once. Probably last year, last Pride Month in 2022. Okay. I think we had one. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you, comrade. In the book burnings in Nazi Germany, lots of the works were Marxist texts, as we understand. Um, but I've heard that a lot of the texts that were burnt were also like studies done on transgendered transgenderdom or things of that sort. And I've also heard that if they hadn't burned those studies or the texts that were um, on it, that we would be a lot farther along in our understanding, that it kind of sort of like set us back like 50 years. Can you like confirm or deny what I just said or how true certain parts of it might be or whatnot? Thank you. Yeah. One thing I'll say is that with book burnings, it's impossible to know, you know, what were the contents of those uh, texts once they've been destroyed. Uh, there was, it was the Institute of Sexology, so there was a lot of studies into gender and sexuality that were being done at the time, and the Nazis destroyed that. I think that, you know, it probably would have been a wealth of information that we would have been able to use that would have had us more developed on those ideas that was lost, but it's only speculation what was included in those texts. I don't know if any of those texts specifically were from Marxists, but I do know that Magnus Hirschfeld had a lot of communication with physicians and psychiatrists and people in the medical field in the Soviet Union in the 1910s and 1920s about this sort of issue. Um, the, the Soviet Union had basically, I forget what the name of the person was, but they had a kind of similar thing to the Institute of Sexology as well. And maybe if one of the LGBT plus comrades remembers who I'm talking about, they can uh, add that in. I'll probably only be able to take two more hands until we go to the next part of the presentation. But if I don't get to you, just remember to keep your hands up and we'll try to get it in the next round. Thank you, comrade. This has been a fascinating and informative um, presentation so far. Um, I was kind of taken aback how you said like, how those comrades were not recognized as victims of the Nazis. It makes me wonder how many other groups of people be, if they had political beliefs or identified as something, were denied as victims just because they didn't quite fit some kind of status quo. I was wondering, does was there any official word on like how many there might have been total? Thank you. Can you just repeat the last part of your question? How many what? Sorry, I guess I'm wondering um, how many 
total victims would there have been that were victims of the Nazis that were not recognized because they were LGBTQ plus? Thank you. Yeah, so I've seen different estimates anywhere from the 15,000 number that were sent to the concentration camps up to 200,000 because there wasn't exactly statistics being done on the LGBT plus population in the census at that time. It's kind of impossible to know just how many people were repressed because of that. And even today, it's hard to get a lot of statistics on how many LGBT plus people there are because not everybody wants to admit to that or identify that way because they fear repression or they fear people finding out. They fear that their information isn't confidential. So that's why even today, those statistics are kind of hard to figure out. Uh, Comrade General Secretary of the Florida. Yeah, uh, remember something carefully. Fascism's main goal is to focus on the groups that don't fit into society, whether they were immigrants in our country, Jews in Germany, communists definitely, the people that were outside. The object of fascism, you should all know by now, is to first make you fearful of something that is different than what you're used to. Once you're fearful, the next step is to distrust and hate it. And that's the typical scapegoating tactic of fascism. Some of these people sent all different ways. For example, they could have been Jewish. They could have been also a communist or a socialist and also could have been gay. So why were they in the concentration camp? It could have been from one of those, and they weren't classified as the others. Anybody that was different in Germany was destroyed. Remember past Nimola, his famous quote, first they came for who? Remember what he said, and I was not that, therefore I didn't say anything. Eventually they went down the whole list, anybody that was different. Trade unionists were the last group, because most Germans were not trade unionists. Remember that. People don't get that. Most Germans were not trade unionists. They owned their own businesses. Uh, they worked for uh, the state or whatever, and there was no union. The point I'm making is that anybody that the reactionary fascist state designates as different, and that's the reason why we have a problem, because of these different people. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. I think this was mentioned in the last uh, year's um, yeah, uh, class, but the, the Nazis were never explicitly homophobic until they really got into power, at least with their platform. I think they were more against you know, the Jews and communists, where when they did get into power, then like you said, you know, they stamped it out, um, that paragraph 175. Or if you read it, it's very vague, and it, it really kind of puts people on their sexuality. But I find that very unscientific and kind of vague and convenient for them to persecute people. And, you know, I think it's over exaggerated how many Nazi uh, members were homosexuals, but there were some and some of them were persecuted because of that conveniently. And it's just something to think about with, like when we're seeing these laws that are happening in our country, when they bring up impersonating a, a sex, I, I find that a very vague statement very unscientific. And, you know, you think about burning books, what kind of books they're burning, they're burning books on science. 
there's a lot of science to back, you know, homosexuality and transgender. It's just something to think about. And then real curious. um, Seconds. Just a real quick question. So the LGBT people were not recognized as people persecuted by the Nazis. When did Germany finally recognize them? Like it was said, they stayed in prison. Did they ever reconcile that? I'm sure they did, but when? Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what point the Nazi persecution of the LGBT plus community was more recognized and, you know, memorialized. But I believe in the later lifespan of East Germany, it was recognized more. And especially after the unfortunate reunification of Germany under the Western powers, Uh, It was more recognized as well. Went a long time before people actually gave recognition to that, memorialized it. So, yeah, I hope that that answers your question. Hello, comrades. So I just wanted to touch on your uh, the definitions that you gave at first in the introduction. And I want to emphasize the three uh, categories, we can say, of material sex, of sexual orientation or sexuality and or of gender identities, okay? So material sex or biological sex, you have male, female, and intersex, which is having both male and female chromosomes, sex chromosomes, right? Okay, then sexual orientation. Basically, we can say heterosexuality, uh, homosexuality, which is gay and lesbian, and bisexuality, but there is many more for sure. Okay, and then gender identity, either you align with your material sex and it's called cisgender, or you do not, and then it would be uh, transgender or non-binary, okay? And um, that's it. Thank you, comrade, and and I mostly agree with that. You know, one thing I just want to say real quick is I think some of the best terminology for it, you know, at the moment is assigned sex, because when you are born, There are sex traits, whether they be male sex traits, female sex traits, or intersex sex traits that you have, and you get assigned a gender uh, from there. Now, nowadays, your parents can actually decide to just put X and not give you one at the start, but the material reality are those sex traits, which are more than just, you know, genitalia or your reproductive system. It's the hormone levels, it's the chromosomes, it's the physical attributes that make up, you know, what we think of as these sexes. Gender is from the consciousness. It's what you honestly feel, you know, about yourself as you get older. When you're a child, you can't necessarily, you don't understand gender yet. You don't understand that sort of complicated thing until you get at least old enough that, you know, you can know who you are and that sort of stuff. And that's when the gender identity really gets developed. So I just wanted to add that in there. I think that you're mostly right on that, comrade. Uh, I had one thing to say, but I always think it's very interesting. You know, people uh, talk about, you know, physical sex, you know, they give it the, the good old binary, right? And uh, they'll talk about intersex people like they're uh, some, I don't know, super abnormal thing. But I I saw statistics about it where um, it was like 2% of people can be classified as intersex. And uh, that's about as many people as there are redheads in the world. So 
not that rare. But what I was going to say, just because I always love the opportunity to bring this up, we're talking about Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, one of the first things for our archival work and the archival commission that we did was uh, track down a couple of his books. And uh, so now we have them preserved in digital format forever. And I'm real proud of that. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, I'm proud of that as well, because some of Magnus Hirschfeld's books were in German, very hard to find. And if you could find them, they were astronomically expensive. So what we have from Hirschfeld is the little that we have left from the burning of that institute. So it's very valuable stuff as we go forward. You know, he wrote The Homosexuality of Men and Women in 1913. That's very early for that subject, comrades. So it's very impressive. Uh, I think when it's when it comes to our political stand on the issue of homosexuality as party of Communist USA, I mean our guiding uh, theoreticians and ideologues are Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Lenin, and Stalin for the most part. I mean as the universal uh, defenders of Marxism-Leninism. So I think it's very important to know what their positions were, uh, were regarding homosexuality, LGBTQ and stuff like that. Uh, I have my own personal views about it. So the only, uh, the only area that I, uh, I would tolerate is biological complications, you know, like chromosomes and stuff like that. If a human being is born with biological uh, problems, I think that that can be medically treated. But I, I, I do not condone social homosexuality, like uh, because you say, you know, I want, I want to sleep with a man, I want to sleep with a woman. I, I don't accept that. All right. Thank you, comrade. You know, one of the things I just want to bring up, is, and we're going to talk about this more when we talk about communists, you know, in the LGBT plus uh, history. But initially in the Soviet Union, male homosexuality was, well, homosexuality and different gender expressions were decriminalized. And uh, Lenin didn't expressly talk about it at the time. You know, Lenin was dealing with the establishment of a new socialist state, wars with both the uh, czarist Russians and imperialists from around the world. So it wasn't really something that was on his mind that much. But there was a lot of progress being made in the Soviet Union in the 1920s on this issue. It took a setback in the 30s. And, you know, we'll discuss the possible reasons for that. You know, a lot of people just jump to blame Stalin for it. And I think that that's inappropriate. But, you know, one of the things I'll say, though, is as communists, uh, we fight for oppressed communities regardless of what we feel personally about them. And so that's just one of the things that I want to hammer home as, as we go forward is there might be personal thoughts about homosexuality or being transgender or whatever. Um, but I think that we have to kind of put that to the side at least for now, when we're looking at this? I think uh, a lot of the oppression, like I think patriarchy and, and the oppression of LGBT plus people are pretty interconnected with the rise of class society. Uh, and like even the distinction between LGBT plus and, uh, and like, cisgen like cis people didn't really exist until the rise of class society. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I would definitely agree with that. I think that that's, you know, exemplified when you look at primitive communal societies versus things that followed that. Comrade. I remembered it before we go. There's a, a lot of, I think there's archaeological or evidence, or at the very least, like we can look at other like hominids to 
see that there's a like I think uh, bisexuality was uh, is like natural, pretty much like pretty. Yeah, I want to remind everybody what Marx said about the term level of consciousness. Nobody seems to talk about that term. That's a Marxist term. Level, L-E-V-E-L, of consciousness. And what is he saying there? He's saying that different times in history, we have a view of something. Then when we find out more information later on in history, maybe two or 300 years later, maybe more, maybe less, that the new information changes the reality. It changes the reality. And that nature tells us clearly that what was true today may not be true tomorrow. And at the time of the 1900s, with the church being predominant in Russian history, the czar and homosexuality was criminalized. Then came the revolution. And the first thing they did was decriminalize laws that were criminal under the czar. And that included a homosexuality. In the past, we did not understand that the damage we were doing to nature with pollution from factories, we were concentrating on building a working class and building an industrial society. But with that came pollution. We did not realize then what it was going to do to us. But centuries later, two or 300 years later, we realized that the level of consciousness through the information we got, that we have to take care of this earth. And it's the same thing with everything. At one time, we were anti-religious because of the church in Russia working against the peasants. Now we realize our fight is not with God. Our fight is with capitalism. And we went through a period of liberation theology in Latin America, where we can work with people who believe in a supernatural being. It's the same thing with all these issues. Because we had a certain view at one time, does not mean there has to be that view in the future. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I want to just briefly expand on that and say that when it comes to, you know, the science around uh, gender and sex and the anatomy of, you know, reproductive systems and the endocrine system and all that. This is something that has constantly changed with more study, with more analysis as time goes on. And so we need to have our ideology reflect that, you know, uh, even the terms, you know, sex itself have often been conflated with gender. And there's been problems in the, you know, field of healthcare with running with that assumption that's kind of created because of the gender norms that are enforced by the ruling class. And that's why we have to be careful, you know, as Marxists, and, and we need to be um, with the most current updated science that we have um, when we're, you know, analyzing these issues. And, and I'll be honest, making this presentation, I didn't exactly have a medical professional right beside me. Um, but I did try to, you know, rely on some stats that were of you know, most recent. Yes, I would like to point out that because the different types of bigotry, homophobia and sexism are intertwined, they tend to reinforce each other. I would like to say that liberation of the LGBT plus 
is also good for the rest of us because it results in a less rigid society. We can all afford to be ourselves a little more that way. Thank you, comrade. So the next section is going to be communists and the LGBT plus struggle. So first, we're going to talk about LGBT plus and the Soviet Union. With the Great October Revolution of 1917, the czarist anti-homosexual laws were abolished, as well as bans on abortions and sexist laws. It was an unprecedented uh, progressive era. A lot of things uh, happened for the first time in history. It was the first time that a modern country legalized abortion. And it was one of the first times that a modern country uh, legalized homosexuality as well. And that was done in the 1922 Criminal Code of the Soviet Union, which decriminalized homosexuality. And also it only banned sex with those under 16. So it, it banned pedophilia, which is good. Uh, it banned prostitution and pandering. Uh, and the law went at the exploiters of the prostitutes, not the prostitutes themselves. Uh, so they weren't pro-sex work, um, but they weren't anti-sex workers, which is important to understand. This freedom for the homosexuality allowed LGBT plus people to engage in their activities legally and to search out gender reassignment surgery. But this surgery was rare and rudimentary at the time. This is the 1920s, so it wasn't the best thing, but it was something that was emerging. And this persisted throughout the 1920s. Uh, and Aaron Belkin was, and this was somebody I found about while researching this, was a Soviet psychiatrist that authorized gender reassignment surgery and was the biggest advocate for trans people until his death. And that's Aaron Belkin right there. And then there's also a picture showing some people that were gay and transgender in the Soviet Union. That continued, this is where we're going to talk about the recriminalization of sexuality and homosexuality in the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, male homosexuality, which is important to recognize that it was only male homosexuality, was recriminalized in about 1933 with Article 121, reasons for which have never been adequately explained. The best explanation that I heard, besides the one that's listed below, is that they needed to make alliances with the Orthodox Church in anticipation of the war with fascism, which is understandable at the time. That's the nuance that we need to understand there. Now, Stalin is often blamed for this, but there's no evidence that exists to suggest that he was actually behind this change, which, you know, that's that's common in a lot of anti-Stalin arguments is that, oh, Stalin did this. Uh, no, it wasn't always necessarily Stalin himself. So, but the most common explanation uh, besides the church one is that the great possibility of a war with Nazi Germany and the Western imperialists meant the need to build a great military force. And who knows how long the war would last or when it would come. Um, you know, it only lasted six years, but before the war happened, it, people thought this, this is a thing that could last for six, 10, 20 years. Nobody knew. Um, it was something that, that was a very, a very scary thing to a lot of people at the time. Uh, more unfortunately, the USSR never decriminalized male homosexuality following this. Leaders and people alike conflated homosexuality with fascism, degeneration, rape, etc., and generally held backwards views about LGBT plus people. Uh, and like I said earlier, this anti-LGBT plus policy was not exclusive to the USSR and was widespread still around the world, especially in the West at the time. 
but let's talk about some some countries that were socialists that progressed LGBT plus rights. Uh, the first is the German Democratic Republic. When West and East Germany were founded, both still had versions of paragraph 175 in effect. West Germany used the Nazi language version. East Germany utilized the Weimar Republic version with the anti-gay law struck from the start. Now, despite East Germany banning gay periodicals and organizations in 1949 and homosexuality still being regarded as bourgeois decadence, East Germany officially abolished paragraph 175 for good in 1968. Paragraph 175 was not abolished in West Germany until after German reunification in 1990. Richard Plant, who is the writer of Pink Triangle, which I would recommend for all the comrades to read about the uh, Nazi persecution of homosexuals, uh, Richard Plant even wrote a 1990 article entitled East German Gay Laws, years ahead of the West. By the way, this picture over here, this German language, it translates to a homosexual liberation, revolutionary homosexuality. I just wanted to include that in there. And now let's talk about Cuba, uh, which Comrade General Secretary brought up. Cuba was not immediately pro-LGBT plus following their 1959 revolution. As Fidel Castro explained later, apologizing for his role in LGBT plus oppression, he said, I am not going to deny that at one point, male chauvinism also influenced our attitudes towards homosexuality. There was less prejudice against homosexuals in the most cultured and educated sectors, but that prejudice was very strong in sectors of low educational level. The illiteracy rate was around 30% those years and among the nearly illiterate and even among many professionals. That was a real fact in our society. Into the 1970s, however, laws restricting homosexuals in arts, education, and in the government were overturned or overruled. And a commission was even established to study homosexuality, not toss it aside as this or that. And in the 1980, Marielle Boatliff, the U.S. imperialists, targeted and used Cuban homosexuals, and thousands fled the island. They were pressured to speak out against the Cuban government. This just goes to show that the imperialists can use uh, any oppressed you know, community uh, for their own ends if they want to. But it is important to understand that the U.S. blockade of Cuba placed many stressors on the country, which made many Cuban people, including the LGBT+, dissatisfied with their life. However, some were still compelled to admit that LGBT+, life in socialist Cuba was miles ahead of the exploitation that they endured under the regime of Fulgencio Batista. Despite these shortcomings, the 1980s proved to be a productive decade on the LGBT plus issue, as the Federation of Cuban Women led the way on the Center for Sexual Education, which educated the Cuban population on LGBT plus matters years before any nation had such a program. And it was later expanded into the National Center for Sexual Education, Cinesex, which reached almost every Cuban home in the 1990s. Cuba also had mobilized against AIDS two years before the start of the epidemic and took massive steps to study and prevent it among the Cuban population. They met the epidemic with science instead of stigma, and they saved countless lives because of it. And this was at a time when the U.S. Uh, ruling class neglected it and just tossed it aside as the gay disease. And a lot of people died because of it, some of which were not even homosexuals, which is important to understand. 
Most recently, the Cuban government passed a new family code, which legalized same-sex marriage, same-sex adoption, and instituted more LGBT plus protections. Cuba is the socialist nation that has done the most to progress on the LGBT plus issue, even while under blockade and with attempted color revolution. Now let's talk about American communists and LGBT plus. Most American communist parties have unfortunately either ignored the LGBT plus struggle or upheld a reactionary position that LGBT plus activity was bourgeois decadence or degeneration. Such stances robbed the LGBT plus community of powerful allies when repression and neglect by the U.S. government was prevalent. This being said, communists were one of the first forces fighting for LGBT plus rights. Harry Hay, a respected CPUSA member, was one of the main founders of the Mattachine Society in 1950. This was as the McCarthyites were waging the lavender scare and trying to root out sexual perverts from the United States government. Um, and that was around the same time as the Red Scare. Uh, and here's a picture of Harry Hay up here, as well as an ad for the uh, Mattachine Society down here. The Mattachine Society's first actions were to educate members on homosexuality and remove the prejudices and social stigma. These were private discussions as red baiting and gay baiting meant the organization could easily be stopped. The first public campaign of the Mattachine Society was defending the Los Angeles Chicano community from police repression. They didn't put themselves out there as individuals, but they used the name Mattachine Foundation, which was their sort of public face, uh, to form the Citizens Committee Against Police Entrapment. They won that court case in Los Angeles, but red baiting and unfortunate internal right-wing led turn against subversive elements in the Mattachine Society caused the group to decline into the 60s and 70s. Uh, and there were other groups that were started up with that name, but they were not the original group. They were not communists. Most unfortunate is that since the Mattachine Society, no Marxist-Leninist-led LGBT plus organizations were formed, at least in the United States, and the old notions about LGBT plus being degenerate and decadent prevailed. Anti-revisionists even upheld this position into the 1980s when the AIDS epidemic was in full swing doing nothing to fight the government neglect of the LGBT plus community. Another result of this position was that LGBT plus activism was unfortunately instead picked up by the new left after the Stonewall riot of 1968 and later by liberals in the 1990s and 2000s. Not everybody was silent about this though. And we're gonna read just a part from uh, this text from the Los Angeles research group of uh, gay communist women. Uh, it's towards a scientific analysis of the gay question. So it says, these groups do not offer a shred of evidence proving gayness is an individual solution to, nor that it per se precludes struggle against male supremacy and chauvinism. Uh, sexual relationships between two people are individual in the sense that two individuals are involved, but they operate in a social context. As such, given the concrete conditions of bourgeois society, Heterosexual relationships are just as likely to be unprincipled, energy draining, decadent, and seen as their participants as havens from outside pressures, as homosexual relationships. At this point, neither, limited to itself, encourages the masses of people to fight around their needs. There is nothing magical about either type of relationship. 
The contradiction between homosexuals and heterosexuals is non-antagonistic. It can be worked out through principled struggle. Communists, gays, and heterosexuals alike must unite with the progressive aspects raised by the gay movement and struggle against those bourgeois elements which exist. The communist role is not to trash or abandon any possible allies to the bourgeoisie. Uh, that's important, and, and I feel like we do that a lot. Not, not that we trash, but that we don't trash any possible allies. Uh, but to show that socialist revolution under the leadership of the working class and its party is the means to the liberation of all people. This consciousness will not arise spontaneously in the gay movement. This consciousness can only be brought to them from without. Just as men, women, heterosexuals, gays, and minorities cross all class lines, any organization of these groups will reflect one or another class line at any given historical period, depending on the strength and development of the different class forces. Gays are not inherently revolutionary, just as some LGBT plus groups would say, nor inherently reactionary as some, quote, communists, end quote, groups would say. The class nature of LGBT plus liberation will change only when it is given revolutionary working class leadership. Until then, like all other groups, bourgeois ideology will fill the political vacuum. Even the working class left to itself can only develop trade union consciousness, which in the last analysis is bourgeois. To expect the LGBT plus movement to be any different when left without proletarian leadership is pure idealism. LGBT plus people, particularly working class LGBT plus people, are perfectly capable of enthusiastically grasping the science of Marxism-Leninism and of being disciplined revolutionary fighters. To make enemies of potential allies is to abandon the working class and its interests. We make the following rightful and righteous demands. One, that the Marxist-Leninist methodology is of dialectical and historical materialism <clears throat> be applied to the LGBT plus question <clears throat> and that subjectivist natural bourgeois ideas based on no investigation be cast aside. Two, that serious self-criticism be made of anti-LGBT plus attitudes among the comrades. Three, that gay people or LGBT plus people who hold ideological, political, and organizational unity with a communist organization be allowed membership. Four, that the democratic rights of LGBT plus people be firmly upheld and struggled for by communists. Five, that evidence of anti-LGBT plus attitudes among the working class be struggled with by showing whose interests such prejudices actually serve. All right, thank you, comrade. And there's just one more slide before we get to the next uh, round of questions and comments, which is the Party of Communists USA's pro-LGBT plus position. Many communist parties around the world and in the United States still hold reactionary anti-LGBT plus positions. PCUSA has made it clear that it does not, and a decent percent of our party membership is LGBT plus. Our party has an LGBT plus commission dedicated to both struggling on LGBT plus issues and bringing the members of the community itself to Marxism-Leninism. 
We may also start a mass org dedicated to LGBT plus soon. Our party pledge explicitly stands against homophobia and transphobia. And the fifth section of our party program is dedicated to LGBT plus, which reads, the Party of Communists USA rejects all discrimination and harassment of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And we hearken back to Lenin and the communist repeal of czarist Russian anti-homosexual laws. We ground these demands in the determination of the working class to abolish all forms of discrimination. Uh, and over on the side is the flag that we have for the LGBT plus commission, making use of that pink triangle. And also on the side is the flyer uh, that we just put out for this month for the LGBT plus commission uh, for Pride Month. So with that, we'll go to another round of questions and comments. Okay, I just wanted to touch on two things. So the first thing I want to touch on is, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic and I did read the Bible as a youth. And, you know, Leviticus is part of the Old Testament and it's like made its way to the Bible. But there's quite a lot of things that are like explicitly forbidden or, you know, frowned upon or things like this. A lot of these things we see in our everyday lives, you know, it talks about, you know, you should not wear mixed fabrics. You should not eat filthy animals. You should not get tattoos on your body, you know, things like this. And a lot of the folks, you know, that push this kind of narrative tend to focus on one issue in Leviticus. And we know which one that is, you know, the a man should not sleep with another man or et cetera, et cetera. You know, I just think it's interesting because there is people who uphold all of them, though. You know, the Orthodox Jews, they don't wear mixed fabrics. They don't shave the hair on their temples. They don't get tattoos, you know, so it's this whole pick and choose kind of idea of like where religion is now you know it's interesting just a note and the second thing that i wanted to bring up is in regards to the roman empire you know at the time they romans had their own religion they had their own uh, social values and all of these things when the church came up a lot of these things were put into place to replace the already existing beliefs and systems okay uh really quickly um a lot of native american cultures are actually like really progressive in this manner, like the Cherokee Nation and the Lakota, Dakota Nations. Um, there are a lot of sort of backwards sections of Native American culture, like uh, my tribe, the Navajo Nation. Um, actually, there is an old law called the Dine Marriage Act of 2005. And basically, it pretty much um, does not allow LGBT plus people to marry. And um, so I, I can only attribute that to the uh, capitalist structure and the colonial structure of um, feudalists. And so uh, those are the remnants of those past societies and the current society. So I wanted to give that to you. Uh, a second point I wanted to make was that one of the um, factors in Germany was that they were, the fascists actually targeted places like Berlin that were really progressive at the time for Jews and communists and socialists. They actually targeted like Berlin and saying that it was decadent. And, and because of that, you can kind of see now how the right and the ultra right are actually targeting places like California as being communist and, and being, and, um, and being like a, uh, a refuge for LGBT plus people and all, all sorts of people. And that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Uh, you know, it reminds me too, in Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest, people will basically say the same things about Portland. I hear the same thing from the rural communities. 
they'll say, oh, it's communist and it's anarchist and it's nothing but chaos there. And you've got all these freaks and everything. So they use the same sort of chauvinist scapegoating tactics for that area as well. It's the same thing nowadays. So um, I want to touch on your introduction, on your definitions, and I'll have a question for you. You know, sex, sexuality, and gender. Okay. So you define cisgender as a person whose consciousness aligns with the material sex, biological sex, reality. Okay. And then you define the LGBT plus as non-cisgender people. Am I correct? Yeah, the LGBT plus community is people that are not cisgender and are not heterosexual. Okay, so uh, the way I can see is the L is homosexuality, uh, women who like women, okay? The G is homosexuality, men who like men, okay? The uh, B is bisexuality of men or women who like men or women, okay? And I believe those people are cisgenders. They have a sexual orientation of a certain type, but they are cisgenders. They do not deny their material sex. Their gender aligns with the material sex. 90 Just seconds. Sexuality is different from the majority of people, but that, and, and then I was wondering the T plus, which would be trans people, and non-binary, whose uh, gender don't align with the material sex, they also have sexual orientations. They may like different, um, you know, okay, you see what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, just to respond to that, you know, I would be careful about, you know, saying things about the biological sex when we're talking about, like, gender. Because, you know, liberals say this a lot, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, divisive connotations to it, but... Uh, gender is a social construct, uh, which was mostly created by the ruling classes to enforce these different roles. In terms of, you know, what we would think of as biological sex, uh, it's a complicated thing. Uh, most people have either XX or XY chromosomes, but you could have a single X, you could have three Xs, you could have XYY, you could be born intersex and have multiple different genitalia that we would say is is uh, man or woman. Um, so it's already something that isn't, you know, specifically just male or female, um, but the state assigns you a gender at birth. And if that gender is a social construct, then if somebody grows up like I did, feeling honestly throughout their life like they were not a boy and they were a girl and people would say, you're a girl. And they would look at me and go, oh, you know, oh, honey, you're so pretty. You know, you look like a pretty little girl. And, and at the time I was like, yeah, I actually think so. And every time that I tried to act more like a boy throughout my life, I felt miserable and out of place. I felt like I wasn't being, you know, authentic to, you know, myself. Um, my gender, I finally realized, and I think the level of consciousness helps with this when there's more understanding of it in society, that, you know, it it really helped me to to come out and understand that and to understand kind of the difference between what we would think of as biological sex and gender. 
And just also to answer your your point about the the sexual orientations, uh, yeah, LGBT plus community is one of the comrades sent me in the chat is and or uh, not cisgender or not heterosexual. You have people that are transgender that are straight. You have people that are gay or lesbian or bisexual uh, that are cisgender. Um, it's just kind of a big community of people uh, that aren't either one of those things. Uh, and I should have said that from the beginning. So I hope that that cleared up some of the some of the misconceptions about that. Yeah, I guess the point I kind of wanted to bring up was especially it, it just reminds me, of, especially in this day and age where, you know, I, I think as communists, when we are, you know, the ruling class will use these issues specifically to kind of foment i mean we've seen it a lot where they'll use it to kind of push regime change you know i mean we've seen it a lot in certain countries where you know the the ruling class will say you know look at look at how they are repressing these you know they're repressing like lgbt plus people but a lot of times they are doing it of course so that they can just further divide the ruling class they're not actually doing it with, you know, an altruistic motive. And so, and I do see a lot of people fall for that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that was just kind of what I wanted to say. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to share everybody my experiences. I was a member of the Communist Party for 43 years. When I joined, we had that Zoom. We didn't have anything like that we had to go to the building and we had new members class. And I never forget the woman who gave the class. This was 1970. It was 1968. Her name was Frances Podowski. Okay. A Jewish woman. And she reminded me of Rosa Klebb, who was a famous character from Russia with love. Anybody who's older remembers the James Bond movie from Russia with love. And there was a woman named Rosa Klebb. And uh, she used to click her heels together and out would come spikes and she would kill people with it. That was the, and she was a communist, a uh, Soviet communist, and that was the anti-communism of the time. But she reminded me of Rosa Klebb. But anyway, we had a class and somebody in the class, I don't remember now who, brought up the whole thing of homosexuality. And this is 68, when it was just starting to rear its head in the movement, the general movement against the war in Vietnam. Things like this were just starting to come, the counterculture and everything like that. So what happened is she said, we don't support that. Listen, I never forgot the reason. We don't support it because the FBI, remember, we came out of the 50s. This was 68, it was right around that period. The FBI uses to frame people homosexuality, and they use it in order to destroy the party to get information. Somebody then asked her at the time, what about a straight person who has sex with somebody, a man and a woman? Can't the FBI use that to frame them to get information about the Communist Party? And, you know, the answer, she couldn't answer that. She did not answer it. That stayed in my mind that they specifically at the time the party did bring out weird reasons of why LBGT, we didn't call it that at the time, they just called it gay, um, was wrong. So I want to share that with people, that people will get excuses that they're against something. Thank you. 
So I'll go to one of the comrades that haven't spoken tonight. Um, I guess when I said this is way back before Hitler, Jews and homosexuals were part of the Nazi party. Until Hitler joined it, he's the one that changed to put Jews and, and homosexuals out of the party, um, out of the Nazi party. That's, what, um, like, um, that's my only. Thank you, comrade. And, you know, there, there's been uh, LGBT plus people as well as, you know, Jewish people in all ruling classes through different points of time. So there were people that were LGBT plus in the Nazi party. Uh, even today in Ukraine, if you look and you pay attention, there are people that are LGBT plus. It's a very small number. It's it's less than 10 even that are in the government and in the army. Um, they use that, you know, for their own ends to say, oh, you know, we support, uh, you know, the LGBT plus. Uh, but they also it also just is kind of a naturally occurring thing where you have people that end up in these positions. And we'll speak about that a little bit in the next section. Okay, I just want to make quickly, I was in Cuba in 1991 at the height of the AIDS crisis. And uh, Cuba had a very progressive uh, uh, policy. Uh, they realized that it was in some ways a contagious disease because people, one person would give it to another uh, during sex. Uh, and what they did was, if you were found out to have HIV or AIDS, you would be placed, there was a, uh, I was at a psych center and they had a special building, no bars, no, no, no gates, you were free uh, to roam around, uh, you had your own bedroom, you could have visitors, but you had to stay there for a few months while you had education classes until you they realized that you realized that you had full control and realization of the disease, and then you would go home. While you were there, if you, obviously everybody worked and everybody had a job, you were paid full. And any benefits your family got, you were paid in full. It's just that you had to be uh, away from society until, so you couldn't affect anybody until you, you realized that what you know how you had to act in society how to have you how do you protect yourself and others and then you just went back to your normal routine uh there was no prejudice about anything you didn't lose any benefits and you didn't lose any seniority 90 and seconds as i said you were it was a very progressive policy and cuba had the, one of the lowest uh rates of of, of hiv uh, and, and AIDS in the entire world. That part about how we are one of the communist parties in the world that supports LGBT plus rights, I think is interesting because a lot of people like to say that, oh, just because, you know, L queer rights, LGBT rights uh, are just specifically like a Western thing. But I mean, there's queer people in every country in the world. And on the opposite side, people like to claim that the Western world and like the, you know, like the United States is far ahead on LGBT rights issues. But I think that there's still a lot of work to be done here as well. I don't think we're exactly where we need to be. I mean, especially in the current state with, um, kind of what's going on all over the country in terms of these anti-trans laws. So I think that, you know, it's one of those things that 
social progress just needs to develop all across the world on this issue. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that it's not so much a matter of this is just a Western issue. It's just we just have a long way to go as a human race. Yeah, and it's it is something that like Comrade uh, General Secretary mentioned, the level of consciousness around the world is increasing on this and some places slower than others. And we can't necessarily fault them for that. Um, You take a look at Russia, Ukraine. Right now, both countries are in the middle of a war. Uh, The LGBT plus issues kind of take the back burner. Um, because right now they're worried about their their houses and their family, the, the especially Russia's worried about it, its existence going forward and whether or not it'll be consumed by the West. But, you know, in terms of the LGBT plus issue, it's not inherently a Western imperialist bourgeois contraption. And we'll see that when we read from the next uh, section. But, you know, Poland is one of the countries that is the worst for LGBT plus rights, uh, worse than Russia, worse than Ukraine. And the imperialists won't bring that up. And the imperialists won't bring up that Cuba is one of the best places in the world for those rights and isn't in the Western imperialist bloc. Or that Vietnam has been making better strides on the the LGBT plus issue. If Russia, China, DPRK tomorrow were to start making strides on this, the imperialists would ignore it. But let something happen under the Obama administration, like the legalization of same-sex marriage happen, and we act like somehow NATO is the vanguard of LGBT plus rights. Uh, but we as communists have to get out there and, you know, explicitly state it's not. And historically, the West has never really been good on LGBT plus rights and, and issues. Have any good resources on the sexual revolution? Uh, and then secondly, kind of connected to that, uh, do you think people had uh, reservations uh, about the uh, LGBTQ issue as well, because you had a lot of uh, organizations funded. Uh, for example, my home, my current state of residence, one of the heads of the sexual revolution, Albert Kinsley, uh, ran an institute uh, that played a very important role in the sexual revolution, as we understand here in the United States, who helped develop uh, a lot of the research uh, that would be used, for example, uh, to put it in kid-friendly terms, uh, adult entertainment, essentially as like an argument uh, on behalf of those people, uh, uh, for example. Those, uh, All right. Thank you, comrade. I don't know specifically about sources on the sexual revolution in the United States. I know that Alexandra Kolontai wrote about the sexual revolution uh, in Russia. I think that we're going to have to find uh, good sources about the United States. Uh, for this class, what was used was uh, selected writings from the LGBT plus commission that we're going to think next week published through No Outlook Publishers and Communists in the LGBT plus struggle. Uh, that includes Bob McCubbin, Leslie Feinberg, this Los Angeles research group, a couple of articles that we've done in the PCUSA, both on what's happened in Cuba and Vietnam, as well as the current struggle today. Um so the main source is going to be that book that's coming out. Other than that, uh, what I can do is when we go to post this up, I can make sure to include a sources page because I know where everything was sourced from. That way we can list all the resources for you, comrade. We have about 30 minutes left for this class. So I'll take one more hand, just try to keep it to 90 seconds, and then we'll have to get back to the presentation. Yes, comrade. First, I want to say that uh, sexuality and sexual orientations 
are as old as humans always existed. Okay, don't forget that. Uh, basically, you know, heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality, that's a majority. And there may be others, I don't know. Okay, I wanna mention about Marx and Engels. Marx was extremely conservative regarding these issues of sexuality or sexual orientations, very much. For example, uh, he could not accept to a man and a woman to be together and not being married. He didn't like it. So Engels was the opposite. And Engels had a girlfriend. Who, she was a proletarian uh, who couldn't read and write. Okay, And um, he never married her. Her name was Mary. Marx hated that. He told him and all that. Okay, Now, before she died, he brought her sister, Lizzie, to live together. Now, we don't know whether they had sex, you know, but they live all three together. But when Mary died, then Lizzie became his official girlfriend with Marx and all, and he married her. So you could say that Engels was in sexuality much ahead of its time, unlike Karl Marx. That's all, comrades. All right, thank you, comrade. And I see the hands that are up. Uh, we'll make sure to get to those in the last question and comment section. All right. Thank you, comrade. So the last section for tonight is the LGBT plus struggle today. Uh, we can make sure that this PowerPoint is also posted somewhere just in case there's anything you missed. So first, the reformism and the placating of LGBT plus. Throughout the 2000s and 2010s, the liberal led American LGBT plus movement pushed hard for needed reforms, such as the legalization of same sex marriage, better access to LGBT plus healthcare, ending LGBT plus discrimination, et cetera. Some of these reforms were achieved, such as the 2015 legalization of same-sex marriage in all 50 states due to the Obergefell versus Hedges Supreme Court decision that struck down all same-sex marriage bans. On one hand, these are necessary reforms that benefit the lives of the LGBT plus community and have raised consciousness about that community. On the other, these reforms placated a lot of the LGBT plus community into thinking liberation was somehow achieved uh, and that there wasn't any more oppression. Um, and, and there's a famous picture on the side of the White House lit up in all rainbow colors back then. Um, yeah. So now the next part, securing the LGBT plus vote, Democrat maneuvering. Democrats largely were unsupportive of gay marriage for decades until around 2010. Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and more did not come out in support of same-sex marriage until shortly before it was legalized. Biden said in a TV interview in 2006, we already have a law, the Defense of Marriage Act. Nobody's violated that law. There's been no challenge to that law. Why do we need a constitutional amendment? Marriage is between a man and a woman. The legalization of same-sex marriage under Obama was used by the Democrats to push for LGBT plus people to vote for them, much like how they pander for the black vote every election. And it's important to understand, too, that while Obama signed in a lot of protections for LGBT plus people, Obama was not the force that led to the legalization of it in all 50 states. That was the Supreme Court. So that's important for us to understand. Rainbow capitalism. Pride events, which originated as an event of resistance following the Stonewall riots of 1968, became corporate-funded, police-escorted, community events more and more after 2015. 
devoid of any political content in the direction of liberation. And it wasn't always like that, comrades. Corporations began changing their logos to rainbow colors around June and putting out platitudinous statements of support to the community in hopes the LGBT plus would buy their products more and give them profits. Rainbow colored merchandise began littering stores in the month of June and the profits came in. To an extent, this was no different than the commodification of Latino symbolism around Cinco de Mayo or Dia de los Muertos, or even of American symbolism around Memorial Day or the 4th of July. The capitalists will go ahead and use any of these groups or issues to sell their stuff. And nowadays you see it with Black History Month, Pacific Islander Month, Indigenous Month. They just want to go ahead and steal the symbolism and sell it back to you. Uh, but the pride events themselves... Uh, we're bastardized by the American capitalists. And we're going to read a section from an article that we put in the Daily Worker about a month ago, Liberation and Liberalism and the LGBT plus movement. I'll read it and then I'll get one of the other comrades to in the next slides. Uh, this is about pinkwashing, by the way. Constantly, the imperialist in the U.S. State Department and in other corporate media pinkwash conflicts and countries to manufacture consent for conflict or interference and ultimately use fear over LGBT plus oppression to suit their own interests. Pinkwashing is the usage of the LGBT plus issue to denigrate or demonize nations which have not seen the same gains for LGBT plus community as has been seen in many Western countries as of late. This is similar to the calls to, quote, protect the women and children, end quote, in a nation either before or after a U.S.-led conflict, such as in Afghanistan, where women and children did suffer a setback with the Taliban takeover of 2021, or in Iran now, where women are facing state repression for challenging religious-based laws on dress, conduct, and more. The Western imperialists, of course, do not actually care about the plight of women, children, or LGBT plus in any of these countries, and their imperialism would not bring real salvation to these communities either. It is simply a tactic in their imperialist activities to manufacture consent for war, sanctions, covert action, and more. It is a similar tactic to paint the very imperialist tools and institutions themselves with a rainbow brush and act as if embassies and the military are more LGBT plus friendly or are fighting for LGBT plus issues despite doing absolutely nothing for the LGBT plus community and allowing ongoing crises such as the beatings of, and rape of LGBT plus and the military to continue. It allows for any attack on an American embassy or LGBT plus service members to be seen as an attack on the LGBT plus community, even if that has nothing to do with it. The pinkwashing does not occur because somehow the LGBT plus movement is an imperialist contraption. It isn't, and historically have not been for decades. The pinkwashing occurs because now that normalization of the LGBT plus community has been happening in the U.S., the imperialists can both use it as a sword and shield in their imperialist campaigns against countries that haven't made the same progress. And the imperialists make platitudinous statements about their support for the community and how they're supposedly changing to be more LGBT plus friendly. Interesting thing to note is that the imperialists disregard the nations of the socialist bloc, such as Cuba, and to a lesser extent Vietnam, which have made strides on LGBT plus issues 
Cuba in particular passed a new family code, which allows the people of Cuba to define their own families and not to be stuck to the rigid mother, father, and child mother model of the past. They've also made incredible progress on the wonderful Senesec sexual education program. Fidel Castro himself, a devout enemy of Western imperialism, congratulated this progress and apologized for not being as understanding and supportive of the LGBT plus community earlier in his life. During and following the in Vietnam, the Vietnamese health ministry recently removed same-sex attraction and being transgender from a list of mental illnesses, and the nation has done much since 2013 to address LGBT plus issues and better serve the LGBT plus community. The imperialists would never recognize this because it does not suit their agenda. They also would not bring up things like the fascistic LGBT free zones in Poland or that Ukraine has the same constitutional limits on marriage that Russia has or that Saudi Arabia has banned same-sex activity and being transgender with capital punishment, life imprisonment, flogging, and more as legal consequences. Why? The answer is because they do not actually care about the LGBT plus community or LGBT plus people. They want to use the issue to push their own imperialist actions. And now LGBT plus repression from Republicans. If one bourgeois party, the Democrat Party, positioned itself as this false vanguard of LGBT plus rights, then the other one, the Republican Party, has pushed itself as the force against it. Playing on the backwards, socially conservative views of the more rural areas that vote for them, the Republicans have led a national campaign against LGBT plus rights, pushing both anti-LGBT plus bigotry and legislation. There are currently a little less than 500 anti-LGBT plus bills advancing through state legislatures, introduced by Republicans in at least 45 states. Texas has the most, with 53 anti-LGBT plus bills in their legislature, followed by Missouri with 48 and Oklahoma with 35. And those might be higher or lower than the time that I put them in this presentation. And on the side, you can see a map. This is from the ACLU of the amount of LGBT plus bills per state uh, and a couple of signs from anti-LGBT plus protests. And then there's anti-LGBT plus violence. Coinciding with the right-wing push against LGBT plus rights has been a rise in the violence against LGBT plus people in the United States. The Williams Institute of UCLA found that LGBT people are nine times more likely than non-LGBT people to be victims of violent hate crimes. 2021 was the deadliest year for transgender Americans with 47 murders. The second largest and deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history occurred in 2016 at the Orlando Pulse Gay Nightclub, where 48 people were murdered in an anti-LGBT plus massacre. Last year, Another mass shooting happened at a gay nightclub in Colorado, killing five and injuring 25. So to end it out, what should we do? Communists have a duty to stand with the oppressed, regardless of how we feel about certain groups of oppressed people. The communist movement has failed this task when it is tossed aside struggling for LGBT plus for whatever reason. Communists should struggle for LGBT plus rights and protections, 
protect working class LGBT plus people and speak out against bigoted rhetoric against them. Surely we will work with backward minded people, but we cannot let anti LGBT plus sentiment fester any more than we would allow racism, sexism, or any other chauvinism to exist. Communists should always bring the struggle back around to the class struggle. This is what separates us from liberals and the ultra left comrades and remind LGBT plus people how their oppression comes from class oppression and that LGBT plus liberation will only be achieved with socialism. Capitalist reforms will not last, but socialism will. Capitalists should also constantly oppose rainbow capitalism, the liberal divisiveness and imperialist pinkwashing and should use their publications and platforms to debunk any notion that capitalists actually care about the LGBT plus community and aren't just using them to their own ends. And with that, we'll go to our last round of questions and comments. I just wanted to quickly respond to Comrade California. Uh, we have to think about why the LGBT plus issue specifically and issues like it are targeted by the Christian as a whole. Our society needs these issues to stoke uh, the class war or the culture wars and needs us to be divided. If they didn't have issues like the LGBT plus issue to be concerned about, their members might talk about needing to treat foreigners the way that they want to be treated. They need to be uh, feeding the poor, taking care of their neighbors, being a good Samaritan, things of that nature that would actually make Christianity be a positive force for the workers. And we can't forget that why I think that this is made to be such an issue. That's all I have. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to say real quick, I totally agree with that. I would just be careful about the terms culture wars or even the term wokeism. I think that these are terms that have more or less came about recently somewhat as a euphemism for LGBT plus issues or social issues. And no doubt the liberals push these issues without the class uh, struggle element of it. But there is like a real discrimination happening against LGBT plus people. And unfortunately, the bourgeois parties are using it uh, to stoke division instead of any kind of, uh, you know, nuanced actual civil rights struggle on it. But I do agree with you. And I had a question on uh, definitions. I understand the letters and all, but my confusion uh, growing up has always been, I thought gender and sex are synonyms, while gender roles is, at least to me, that's what people, it sounds like gender is being, I don't know, do you kind of get what I mean? Like, I always thought gender and sex are the same thing, while gender roles were the, um, what you, like, people are told to do because of their assigned gender. Yeah. I, I understood. The, are they... Do all three of those things mean separate things? Somewhat. There are genders and then there's the gender roles, which I think is what the ruling class assigns to us. Kind of this idea that, you know, the men go out and they work and they fight the wars and they do all this. The women stay at home with the children and they rear the children and they cook and clean and all of that. That would be the gender roles. The gender itself is, you know, what you identify as. It's the social construct. Sex is, I believe, you know, somewhat of an outdated term, but, you know, it still applies to some extent to the gender that you're assigned at birth. Um, I hope that that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So really quickly, as as American liberals, capitalism uh, continues to fall further into decay, we will see 
more reactions against uh, against um, people of uh, people of color, so chauvinism, and and of course LGBT plus, and you can kind of see how how that's actually um, coming about. Um, like just this morning, Joe Biden actually uh, put out a sanction against Uganda, which is actually an ally with Russia. And they use this LGBT pinkwashing in order to say, hey, you know, we're going to sanction you now because of this. But really, it's, it's not because of that. They don't care for LGBT plus. That's just an example. Uh, they just don't want Uganda and, it's, um, and all of the uh, natural resources that they hold to be allied with, uh, with Russia. All right. Thank you, comrade. Two little things to mention uh, regarding the hit to how capitalism has uh, influenced a lot of the gay pride uh, uh, events. Uh, I was the, uh, before I retired, I was the union leader from all the downstate New York addiction treatment centers and uh, of hundreds of people. And I led, I tabled, I used to run the table for the gay pride events. And uh, especially they had the one, a big one. Uh, it's a snug harbor in uh, Staten Island. And uh, what happened is that uh, my table was probably one of the least visited as opposed to a lot of the uh, capitalist uh, corporate tables. And we had a lot of information uh, regarding, I, I pulled down and picked out articles and we had leaflets, how uh, alcoholism and addiction afflicts the uh, gay community and the lesbian community. And we really didn't have that much people coming to the uh, table as they should. Uh, one other thing, a little historical note. One of the greatest heroes of World War II was a man who broke the German uh, code that uh, we were able to read. And uh, we knew all the German plans in advance. That was an Englishman called Alan Turing. He was one of the greatest heroes of the war. He was thrown into jail uh, because they, he was gay uh, and he had, uh, you know, involved with gay activities. So that the English government prosecuted him and threw him into into jail. So much for the appreciation of what he did in World War II. All right. Thank you, comrade. And comrade, did you remember what you wanted to say? Uh, yeah, I did remember what I wanted to say um, really quickly. Um, the second thing I wanted to say was that um, after World War II, uh, with the USSR in East Germany, they released LGBT plus people from concentration camps. During that time, they just went back to work. Um, there was no prosecution or anything like, "Hey, you're gay. You're not gonna. You're not allowed to be part of the government." Or anything like that. They just went back to work and and just lived normal lives. And I think that's exactly what we just want to do. We just want to LGBT plus people just want to work and live normal lives and be part of society. And it's the capitalist structure, it's the feudalist structure, it's the slavery, slave structure that actually just wants to prosecute LGBT plus people due to reasons of um, maintaining workers or whatever such, you know, reasons. And like, I think that's the most important thing that we need to come away from this class is that LGBT plus people are workers which is part of society, which LGBT plus just wants to be part of society. And that's all it is. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. I want everybody to remember what Martin Luther King said in the civil rights movement. He told the white racist in the South, I don't care if you like me. I thought that was extremely interesting. I just don't want you to use your positions of power to oppress me. That's the whole message. We're not here, in my opinion, 
to validate a person who is a member of LGBT. We're not here to validate a person who's born with dark skin. We're not here to validate a woman who is born as a female. What we're here to do as communists is to say we're not going to oppress people, that we all stand together against the capitalist class. That's the message that we are trying to present. That's the message that Martin Luther King presented. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you agree with me. Just don't support oppression of me. That's the whole message. I wanted to make that clear. Uh, thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yep, uh, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, you know going back to rainbow capitalism. Uh, rainbow capitalism more or less is the commodification of social movements. It's something that you see with like comrade Che Guevara's face being plastered in uh, uh, t-shirts and stores. It's basically what they can do with uh, pretty much any kind of social movement that gets popular. If it gets popular, you can commodify it, you can sell and make money off of it. And it's also something that is done through marketing, marketing through the commodification of social movements, and even recently, marketing to create a reaction to them. I can cite the example of uh, Keurig, the coffee-making uh, machines. They did something in the past where they absolutely pissed off a bunch of conservatives and the conservatives went on the social medias to just blast Keurig, destroy the machines publicly, basically make a clown out of themselves while showing off how upset they are about these machines and the company in return, inspiring the liberals on the other side to say, oh, Keurig must be doing something good because they're pissing off the opposition. And so we're going to support them by buying their product. And of course, the people that destroyed the Keurig said, I like my coffee, so I'm going to go out and buy another Keurig machine. So it's profiteering through, you know, dividing the working class against itself. And it even extends to uh, capitalist institutions like the CIA, FBI, you know, the whole government altogether. By basically profiting off of the commodification of social movements, it's basically taking it as a means of uh, justifying the government to solidify itself as a, the government of the people when it's not and using its stance on social movements to basically say that it is good in any social movement or any government that it is not like to paint them as something that is evil, unjust, and, you know, basically something to be overthrown. So it's something to be aware of is that, you know, commodification of social movements and, of course, combating rainbow capitalism. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, this class should be posted as soon as possible. Seriously, like this message needs to be come across to so many people. So I'm going to spread it like wildfire. I'm going to spread what we discuss in this class so much. If you please post the class on YouTube, please, please, please. It's so important to get this across. Thank you. Well, it's it's going to be out just as soon as we get the other classes out, but we will have it out at some point soon. You know, one thing that sets us apart from the people's school when it was directed by people before was we don't just pick and choose which classes to put up. We put all of them up after they've been edited. So this will be out there, comrade. Oh, yeah. Um, we touched on it a little, um, successes in socialist countries. I was going to talk about Vietnam, but, you know, we talked about that already. One thing that's worth mentioning on Vietnam is that before this move was made, people wanted gender-affirming care. They had to make a pilgrimage to Thailand. And uh, now they don't have to. And that was a big deal. Progress is also being made in China, not quite so legislatively as it has in Cuba and Vietnam. It's more culturally as of yet. But um, 
gradually the public perception of LGBT plus is shifting. Very large pride events are happening in China. They're opening centers for gender affirming care in China recently. And even on uh, state media like CGTN, you'll see positive articles about the LGBT plus movement. Um, of course, it's not all good. Laos recently banned um, drag beauty pageants. So that's not good. But we can't just ignore things that are bad or that are happening. But yeah, um, by and large, the socialist world and of course, the rest of the world, it, their consciousness is heading in the correct direction. All right. Thank you, comrade. I wanted to talk a little bit about how you said the vacuum of uh, ideology, right, within the gay community, the LGBT plus community is filled with bourgeois ideology. And the reforms that are granted by the bourgeois to the LGBT plus community that you touch beautifully on in the third section are so flimsy and transparent. It's very clear that they are ready to scrape these back as soon as possible. Clarence Thomas has already signaled publicly in a defiling in the Supreme Court. He wants to bring it back. Samuel Alito even was smart enough not to do that. But they are confident that this is a place where they are only placating. They are going to crank this lever back as hard as possible, as soon as possible, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I definitely agree with that. You look at some of the things that if you look at like the anti-LGBT plus push that's happening right now with legislation, and then you look at somebody like, for example, uh, Ron DeSantis, who is a former Guantanamo torturer, is very anti-LGBT plus in his own state. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the coverage recently has been between him and Disney, which isn't the best. Um, but even before that, there was the don't say gay bill, et cetera. You know, I think that it, maybe he's just the, the white horse that follows before fascism or something. He might not be a fascist himself. But I think that when fascism does come to America, the LGBT plus is still going to be a serious scapegoat. And you could see real crackdowns that affect LGBT plus people and they could be hurt and killed. You know, just from my own experience out here in the Pacific Northwest, when we see neo-Nazi groups out here, one of their biggest things is they go to target uh, drag shows. They go to target pride parades. There was a U-Haul van of Proud Boys that was busted up in Coeur d'Alene that was getting ready to assault a pride event last year. So it's very serious stuff that's going on in this country. And you can bet that it's just getting worse from here. And that's why the reformism is not going to last. All right. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up the class now. Uh, first, I want to thank all you comrades for being respectful tonight and for all the insightful questions and comments. I know this is still an issue that there's a lot of disagreement about in the communist movement, but I think it's great when we can actually talk about it here and ask these questions and try to understand it without any kind of you know disrespectfulness or anything. So thank you, comrades. And then we have a section for New Outlook Publishers. Thank you. Uh, please... Uh, visit our partner publishing house, New Alec Publishers. Uh, the website is newalecpublishers.store. Uh, you can find a lot of great works on New Alec Publishers. Uh, one work that uh, has some uh, pertinence at the beginning of this class or the origin of the family, private property in the state, you can find there, as well as our next release, which will come out on Monday. Uh, very pertinent to this class. And it is uh, volume one in a series of selected writings with the LGBT plus commission of the party of communist USA communists and the LGBT plus struggle. So please check that out next week. 
Uh, that is all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And of course, our legal drive last year, we were attacked and sabotaged by wreckers that tried to seal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA. Uh, these ultra leftist wreckers failed, but they will be held accountable. And there are still things that they've took from us that we've not got back, like videos, imagery, audio, etc. That's why we still need donations to the legal drive. So if you can, if you can donate anything, five, 10, $15, whatever you can afford, make sure to go to partyofcommunistusa.net slash donations, put for legal funds in the details box and try to donate on Tuesday or Thursday so it's easier for us to sort through. And that will go to the legal fund. And once again, anything helps. It's the amount of people that show support for us that really matters. If you appreciate the school, you wanna see what we do continue, you wanna see us be able to uh, succeed in these legal proceedings, um, and hold these, these, these criminals accountable. Please help us out and donate. Before we go to the last song for tonight, Comrade General Secretary, is there anything you'd like to say? Yeah, all I wanted to say is um, uh, new people, if in order for the school to continue, we want to win the legal drive that's in the court. So we need everybody to show them that you support the school. The lawyers told us this. They said the number of people that respond to the fund drive is important, not the amount of money, but the number of people. So I would suggest if anybody hasn't done it yet, even the new people who are just here, go on to the, the website and give a dollar, $2, whatever, and tell us in the little box for the fund drive. That would be very helpful because that goes to the lawyer and that's important. That's all, I have nothing else to say, thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit. <laughs>